I've told you many times that an unguarded strength is a double weakness. When we get to the point where we think, oh, I could never do that, then you're tempting the devil to tempt you. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Well, we're in chapter 4 of our study of the book of Romans, and we have seen that much of this chapter deals with the issue of faith. Last time, we looked at the faith of the patriarch of Israel, Father Abraham, who the Bible tells us believed in the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Today, we move forward a bit and look at the faith of David, the greatest king ever to sit on Israel's throne. Now, there are three truths that Paul underscores for us that I don't want you to miss. And if you want to use your note-taking outline, if you're new, there's one there in the bulletin. You might want to just jot down a few thoughts and go home. I know hundreds of you, you've told me, you've written me, you're studying Romans throughout the week, you're reviewing it. That's fantastic. You're the ones who are going to benefit the most. You're the ones who are going to grow deeper and further than anyone else. So, number one, David understood that salvation was freely given. He understood that salvation was freely given. Now, look at verse 6 of Romans 4, where he moves from Abraham to David. He says, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Now, when he uses those words, just as, he's making a, a fundamental comparison between Abraham and David. When he says the scripture that also speaks, again, he's, he's reminding us there's something that was true of, Dave, of, of Abraham that I just taught you from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6 that I am now going to teach you, Paul says, from Psalm 32. There's, there's a comparison between those two Old Testament passages that teach that a man is saved apart from anything that he can do. So in verse 6, he's, he's making this comparison. Now, when you read Psalm 32 that Paul is going to quote, he assumes you know Psalm 32 or you're willing to study Psalm 32. And if you know Psalm 32, it's a companion psalm to Psalm 51. Most of us know Psalm 51. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are parallel uh, psalms in our English Bible. Now, they're not numbered that way in every Bible because some of the psalms are different in different languages of the world in terms of the breakdown. But Psalm 32, Psalm 51 are identical psalms. How so? Because the, the context in which those psalms were written was a heinous, wicked sin that David committed when he was involved in murder, getting someone drunk, and committing adultery. So hold your finger here, if you would, and turn to 2 Samuel 11. Paul assumes you understand the backdrop of Psalm 32, or if you don't, again, that you'll study it. Now, remember in the early church, the early, early church, for well over a decade before the first New Testament book had been written, God's people studied when they gathered on the Lord's Day of the Old Testament, because that's all they had. And so they were, of course, much more familiar, even the Gentiles with their Old Testament, than many of us are. Now, someone asked me recently, why does the Hebrew Bible have 24 books 
in our English Bible have 37. They have the same 37 books, they just number them differently. Samuel is one book in my Hebrew Bible. First and second Samuel is one book, but they have the same 37 books. Second Samuel, I hope you found it, sounds like it, chapter 11, and notice, if you will, verse one. This is the backdrop of Psalm 32 that Paul is gonna reference it. And if you really understand this, I mean, this passage is gonna come alive in your heart this morning. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, then it happened in the spring, the same time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. So God's giving us the setting here of David's sin. We're told specifically in the spring. In Israel, if you've been there, you know the rainy season is between November and April. And they collect water in their cisterns and they don't see virtually any rain during the summer months. And so the ground is wet in the spring, they prepare the crops and the kings during that time go out to battle. But, I have that circled in my Bible, but David stayed at Jerusalem. Instead of taking on his responsibilities as a king and leading the troops out into battle, he stayed at home. Now, in our day, maybe the president of the United States, the commander-in-chief, he, he stays in the White House and gives the orders from there. Not in Bible days. The commander-in-chief, who was the king, he was with the forces in the field engaged in the battle. But not David on this occasion. While the troops are besieging this Ammonite city called Rabbi, David is interested in besieging a woman by the name of Bathsheba. So he sends Joab out to do the dirty work. Look at verse 2. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of his house. I like the old English here. It says, uh, he came off his bed at evening tide. Our New American Standard says when evening came. But it's a good old English word because evening tide, we live on the coast, right? And we talk about a tide change when the tide moves from high tide to low tide or low tide to high tide. Evening tide was that time in the day when the late afternoon would dissipate and it would become dark. And so when David should have been getting ready to go to bed, he was getting up because he was sleeping during the day. And so there's this tide change. There's this change from late afternoon into early evening. And of course, had he not been idle, had he been doing what he should have been doing, he never would have found himself in this temptation. And I believe there's a lesson there for many of us, because many times it's our idle time that leads to sinful time. It's when we abandon our God-given duties that we very often open ourselves up to temptation. There's two fields of responsibility that David as king should have overseen, and one was the harvest field, the other was the battlefield. Now, there's a whole sermon in and of itself, but you could apply that directly to us today because there's two fields that the believer is to be engaged in, the battlefield and the harvest field. But what I want you to see is that the problem with David is not that he is failing to do something wrong. He's failing to do something right. He should be out in the battle, and because of this sin of omission, he enters into a sin of commission. And let me just say, it's idle time that leads many a teenager today into sin. You know, teenagers come home, very often there's no parents there. 
They're talking on their phone. They're scanning the internet. Now I'm told that 80% of young young men by the age of 12 have seen or witnessed or watched pornography on the internet. Dads and moms, I hope you know what goes on in that computer. And so they come home. They're watching the filthy talk shows. They're watching the internet. And they've got all this idle time on their hands. And so immorality is widespread amongst our youth in America. And let me just say, you could take the same principle and apply it to a lot of adults. There's a lot of adults who have idle time on their hands. And they go home at night and they sit there in front of that tube hours on end when they might be, you know, leading a Bible study or studying a passage or painting the house or doing something productive. And it's David's idleness that leads to sin. Look further in verse 2. And from the roof... He saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Now, remember, Samuel's writing this biography initially on the three greatest kings in the book of Samuel. We call the books of Samuel, Saul, David, and Solomon. And so he's writing this biography largely from David's perspective. He's not writing so much from Bathsheba's perspective. And so her central drives and the things that were behind her aren't really unfolded here. Now, I don't want to be guilty of eisegesis. Exegesis is what a pastor is supposed to do. He's supposed to study and show himself approved. If, if a pastor really loves Christ, among other things, principally what he's to do is just to study the Word of God. Now, his congregation may have a different job description for him, but Jesus made it very clear. He's to study the Word of God so that he can feed the flock of God. That's what he said to Peter three times over. You really love me, Peter? Then feed my sheep. And sometimes we are guilty of eisegesis. Eisegesis is when we read into the text. Exegesis is when we read out what God has plainly said. And I've heard a lot of eisegesis about Bathsheba and what went on in her mind and and, and what sin she was involved in. The fact is we don't know, and there's a lot we don't know either about David. You know, did did, did David uh, coerce her, force her, use his kingly authority to get her up there? We don't know, and I don't want to be guilty of that. But there are some things we do know about both of them. Number one, about David, we know that he didn't have to stare. He saw a woman bathing. And the stem in the Hebrew text means he kept seeing. He didn't take Job's advice that had been written for a long time. Job lived during the time of the patriarchs. It's fallen in the wisdom literature in our Bible, but he lived during the time of Abraham. So Job had been in print for a long time, and Job taught the principle of bouncing the eyes. He didn't have to stare, but he stared. He kept looking. And so he entertains his sin nature, and what he stared at, he soon sought after. This warrior king, known for his great victory in the battles that he had fought, had taken off his spiritual armor. And of course, uh, why did he do that? Well, I think among other things, because he was coasting. He had had so many victories, victory after victory after victory, that he just assumed the next victory was assured and that he didn't need to carry out his responsibility. And many times Christians do the same thing. They've had victory after victory after victory and they feel like they're invincible, that they cannot fall. And so David here, he doesn't fall at the point of his weakness. He falls at the point of his strength. He was a man of integrity. You say, how do you know? Read Psalm 26. It's 
It's a whole psalm dedicated, describing his integrity that God the Holy Spirit pins through that man's life. It was the breath of God that God uses to describe this man's integrity. But I've told you many times that an unguarded strength is a double weakness. When we get to the point where we think, oh, I could never do that, then you're tempting the devil to tempt you. Paul in the New Testament will say, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. After he had just enumerated on all those Old Testament illustrations where Israel fell because they thought they were strong and invincible. And Paul says, don't make their mistake. I'm writing you about them as an example that you won't fall into the same kind of folly. So here's a man who has this unexpected opportunity that comes along. He goes out, he sees her bathing from his rooftop, and he has this unguarded strength. And when you put an unexpected opportunity together with an unguarded strength, you have the formula potentially for sin. And it's underscored in the original. She's very beautiful, and she's bathing. Now, David got careless. He was coasting. He let his guard down. And so we read in verse 3, so David sent and inquired about the woman. Now there's a progression that obviously unfolds. First he saw her, and then he desired to find out who she was. Perhaps at first he wanted to see if she was unmarried. Maybe he would marry her. But of course the answer comes through one of his servants. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? God is making it crystal clear through one of David's servants that she is a married woman and it should have stopped him cold in his tracks. But James says when sin is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And so David wouldn't stop at anything. Now, he could have stopped, but he chose not to stop. God was giving him a chance. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall, for no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. That's what this scripture says. There's nothing that you are facing today that's unique to you. It's common to all of us. But then he reminds us at the end of that verse that God provides a way of escape and God provided a way of escape for David. But he didn't take it. He should have run in the opposite direction, but he didn't do it. And so unlike Joseph, who has a woman come and just grab his garment and say, lie with me. Here's David who devises a plan and conjures up a strategy to have this woman. Look at verse 4. And David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. Now, maybe at first he rationalized himself. All right, she's married. But what harm is there in just talking to her? Maybe he just thought, oh, she's beautiful. I'd like to talk to her, flirt with her. Or maybe he reasons, ah, you know, Uriah, like the other men, he... He's going to be gone to war for months. No one will ever know. But when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And the Bible says, be sure of this. Your sins will find you out. Now, of course, she doesn't resist. She could have resisted. We know that from biblical history. Now, we know based on pagan kings, if you were a pagan king and you wanted a woman, you could have her. And if she didn't want you, well, that was the end of her life. That was it. But David is not some pagan. He's a man of God. And she could have said, oh, David, I cannot do this. I cannot break my vow against my husband Uriah. And I cannot break my vow against God. 
And that would have just popped his balloon and it would have ended. Listen, when you, when you shed light on a temptation, it just sucks all the power out of it. That's why we are to hide Scripture in our heart. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. With all my heart I've sought thee, don't let me wander from your commandments. Your word I've treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's what Jesus does in Luke 4, Matthew 4. Whenever the temptation comes, because the word of God is hid in his heart, he says, the Scripture says, the Scripture says, the Scripture says. But here's King David. And he doesn't really care at this point. And his heart has begun callous. And this sin that started with a small temptation is turning into a hot-blooded sin. But Bathsheba doesn't resist either. Maybe she thought, well, he's beautiful, he's handsome, and I'd like to have a relationship with him. Now notice uh, the end of verse 4. <clears throat> and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness... She returned to her house. I find that so interesting. It appears that Bathsheba was following a principle in Leviticus chapter 15. You can go home this afternoon and study it. Where after a certain number of days after a woman's menstrual cycle, there were some things that she was to do under the Old Testament law. And God drops that in here for two reasons. Number one, to definitively underscore that only David could be the father. But two, it's a reminder to us that people often can be religious even in the midst of impurity. What she does based on Leviticus 15 that she should have done was not done out of a pure heart but after an evil act. And that doesn't surprise me because religion is often used as a cover-up for sin. Many a person will commit adultery on Saturday night and then come in on Sunday morning and sing the hymns and give their tithe and go through all the religious hoops as if everything were okay. But God says obedience is better than sacrifice. Verse 5. And the woman conceived and she sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. Now David has a serious problem on his hands because Bathsheba is pregnant and he's going to get caught in his sin. So at this point, he can accept the consequences, confess his sin, deal with it, or he can hide it. And he chooses, of course, the latter. Verse 6, then David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. So David attempts to legitimize his sin by blaming it on Uriah. And so he calls Uriah from the battlefront to get a report. He says, oh, tell me about what's going on in the battlefield. How, how are things going? He could care less, really. He wants Uriah there, as the text will indicate, only to set him up, only to cover his own sin. And so... He wants this man who's been out on the battlefield to be able to go to his home and to enjoy the pleasure of sleeping on his own bed and the intimacies of marriage to frame him, to make it look like he got her pregnant. Verse 8, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. That's the Old Testament way of saying, take some time off and relax. And Uriah went out of the king's house 
And a present from the king was sent out after him. Now, I don't know what that present is. It's unnamed here in the text. I suspect it was a bottle of his best wine. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now, when you read verse 10, you begin to feel David's panic. Notice. Now, when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and by the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. He's saying, listen, King David, I'm trying to honor God and my king. I could not do that to you or to my God, not by your life or by your soul. Then David, verse 12, said to Uriah, stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now you have to admire this man because he's willing to identify with his soldiers who are out in the battlefield. They couldn't enjoy the comforts of home or the comforts of their wife, and so he thought, neither am I going to. Why should I experience these things when my compatriots in the field are deprived of them? And you would have thought that that kind of attitude would have just broken David's heart. This man who should have been in the battlefield, then he hears of a man who, who, who doesn't experience the enjoyments of life because he wants to so identify with his troops that should have shamed him into obedience. But his heart is calloused at this point. So when plan A doesn't work, he goes to plan B. Notice verse 13, now David called him and he ate and drank before him and he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. So David goes a little bit deeper into sin this time. He gets Uriah drunk, hoping that he will forget his sacrificial vow and go sleep with his wife. By the way, I hope you know that it is a wicked thing to get another person drunk. The prophet Habakkuk says, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. In Scripture, Wine is used of different ways. Some have very ridiculously said that all wine in the Bible was unfermented. Nothing could be further from what the Bible reveals. The word oinos, yayin in the Old Testament, can be used to describe unfermented wine. It's usually adjectival with the word new, new wine. But very often it's used to describe fermented wine. And here in Habakkuk, he talks about a man who gives his neighbor to drink from the wineskin directly. Why? Because from the wineskin directly meant it was fermented. And number two, it meant it was strong drink. And God forbade a man to give strong drink or to drink it himself with the one exception in Proverbs 31. When you could give it to a dying, despairing man, much like we'd give morphine today to someone who's in pain. And so the prophet says, you give someone strong drink. He's not talking about the distilled liquors, of course, that came centuries later directly from the wineskin to make them drunk. Why do you do that? Because many a wicked man, many a wicked woman knows the way to seduce someone of the opposite sex who would otherwise be a virtuous person 
is to get them high on booze because they will do things that they would not otherwise do. And God says, woe to you who do that. And God would say to King David, woe to you for making Uriah drunk. It's an awful thing to make another person drunk. But let me tell you how sin works. You get one callus and your heart becomes a little harder and a little less sensitive and it forms another callus and another callus and another callus. This is the man after God's own heart who's at this point living a wicked life. So when plan B doesn't work, he goes to plan C. He goes for the jugular. Notice, now it came about in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he had written in the letter, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. I mean, it's really a paradox if you think about it that he sends the letter for the assassination plot of Uriah through Uriah's hand. But it says a lot about Uriah, doesn't it? That he's such a man of honor. He can be so trusted that he will not look at the king's letter. He will deliver it in its sealed fashion. Why? Because he loves and respects his king. And it's often overlooked in this murderous plot. But if you remember, Uriah was a special man. He served King David early on as an administration. If you go back and read 2 Samuel 22, you you learn that David had his 400 men, those men who stood with him strong and tall when he tried to receive his kingdom back. And out of those 400 men, the Bible tells us there were 37 men that were David's mighty men. And Uriah was one of those mighty men. Here's a man who faithfully, for many, many years, had served his king. And so he's betrayed by the two people whom he loves the most, David and his wife Bathsheba. Now, she may not know of the murderous plot at this point, but her silence is also evil. She doesn't come to Uriah and say, oh, honey, you're away on the battlefield, and I did an awful wicked thing. I slept with King David. No, she goes along with this deceptive plan. She fosters it by her own silence. And that's very often what people do when they get caught up in the sin of adultery. They commit adultery and then comes the deception. And very often the prisons are filled with just not princes but paupers who not only are deceptive but they murder. They murder the person sometimes they've committed adultery with or they murder the person that, that the adulterous person to whom they slept with was married to so that they could continue the harmful, wicked relationship. History records it. Our prisons in this country are filled with such actions. Verse 16. So it was as Joab kept watch in the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city went out and fought against Joab and some of the people among David's servants fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So David's not just guilty of murder. Because of the plan he conceived, many of Uriah's men fell. He's guilty of multiple murder. To listen again to today's study entitled The Salvation of David, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. 
You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and asking for program ROM18. As we near the end of the year, won't you consider giving a one-time gift or perhaps even becoming a monthly partner of Search the Scriptures? Your financial support allows us to continue airing this program on radio and to provide free teaching resources over the Internet. Please call 877-787-7478 or donate online at searchthescriptures.org. Thank you. Tomorrow we conclude our look at the salvation of David. Join us then as we search the scriptures.